here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. We begin the readout tonight waiting, as you just heard, to see if Speaker Pelosi will bring the bipartisan infrastructure bill to the House floor for a vote tonight, which per her history, Pelosi would likely only do if it will pass. Right now, members are bracing for a late night with no vote scheduled before 9 p.m. But top aides to the president, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have been huddling to figure out a path forward. Now, if you've been paying attention to the Beltway Media conversation about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, nicknamed BIF, and the larger reconciliation bill, what you've probably heard a lot about is how much these bills cost and what certain politicians in particular are willing to spend. What you're not hearing enough about is what's actually in these bills and what they mean for you. Because here's the reality. This debate isn't about numbers. The debate is about what policies you, the American people, believe should become law and therefore are worth spending money on. And it so happens that the things in both of these bills are things Joe Biden campaigned on, won on, and vowed to deliver if and when he was elected. We're at a great inflection point in history. We have to do more than just build back better. We build back, we have to build back better. We also need to make a once in a generation investment in our families and our children. Trickle down economics has never worked. It's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out. Democrats now have an opportunity to put their money where their mouths are. Let's take a beat and remember what we are talking about. The bipartisan infrastructure bill sets aside 550 billion new dollars for roads, bridges and public transit, a major expansion of high speed Internet and funding for clean drinking water. Think Flint, Michigan. It also includes some new measures to combat climate change. This is the bill that moderate Democrats and some Republicans are all for. But the second bill, which would focus in large part on President Biden's Build Back Better agenda, like expanding the child tax credits, establishing paid family and medical leave, funding universal preschool and free community college and more robust action on climate change. Well, that is where things get tricky. You see, opponents of the bigger bill, which was split off so that it could be passed by Democrats alone through reconciliation, say that the price tag is too high. But just for a second, let's put that in perspective. The Build Back Better bill would set aside $3.5 trillion over 10 years. Do you know how much you pay for our defense budget over the same amount of time? More than $7 trillion. So let's get real. This shouldn't be about how much it costs because we know Republicans in particular do not really care about running up debts. Because if that was the case, their mango Mussolini would have been put on a tighter leash. This fight isn't even about so-called moderates versus progressives. It's about what values we decide to implement through the power that we give the people we elect, which the speaker, Nancy Pelosi, made abundantly clear today. I just told uh, members of my leadership that the reconciliation bill was a culmination of my service in Congress because it was about the children, the children, the children, the children, their health, it's about health, education, 
the economic security of their families, a clean, safe environment in which they could thrive, and, and I guess a world at peace in which they could succeed. And she's right, because these are massive investments in the American people and something that we haven't really seen since FDR. It really shouldn't shock you to hear that the majority of Americans like this stuff. One poll showed that 64 percent of voters support the infrastructure bill. That same poll showed that 62 percent of voters, when showed what's in the bill back better agenda, support that. Which makes Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema's obstinate refusal to budge on these issues all the more perplexing. Instead, they seem content backing the majority of their congressional colleagues into a corner with zero evidence that they will commit to anything but their pet issues, which explains some of their colleagues' skepticism. I believe that there are some that don't want to pass both bills. And I think that what we've seen from the influence of corporate lobbyists in Washington, that that is absolutely part of the conversation. And that's why we want to secure a path to passage on both of these bills. Senator Manchin was asked about some of that criticism today. What do you say to people who Hold feel on. you and Senator Sinema are holding this whole thing up? I'm not holding it. We only have 50 votes. Basically, take whatever we don't aren't able to come to agreement with today and take that on the campaign trail next year. And I'm sure that they'll get many more liberal, progressive Democrats with what they, they say they want. I guess that he's forgotten that this was already litigated in 2020. And guess what? Joe Biden won that argument. With me now, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You know, I have to say, Congresswoman, what has perplexed me the most about this fight is that having, you know, been around Democrats and, you know, been a Democrat and, and sort of observed Democrats in the wild for a really long time, my presumption always was that I understood what Democrats were, in, were for in general. I want to put back up What's in the Build Back Better proposal? Because I think when, what Nancy Pelosi said today about this being the culmination of basically why she's a Democrat, this is over 10 years, paid family leave, universal pre-K, free community college, child care reforms, extended child tax credits, climate change provisions, Medicare expansion. When you combine that with what's in the other bill, meaning the roads and bridges, the high-speed internet, et cetera, the two of those things together strike me as what Democrats are generally always for. Number one, why were the bills split up in the first place? And do you now think it was a mistake? Because the combined sum of those two things is what I thought Democrats were about. Yeah, Joy, it's so great to see you. And uh, yes, we were not for splitting up the bill in the first place. In fact, we told everyone we knew that that was a bad idea because what we didn't want to do is pit roads and bridges against childcare, against Correct. paid leave, against free community college. And when the decision was made to split the two bills, what we said in the Progressive Caucus, and we're a 96-member strong Progressive Caucus, we said that a majority of our members would not vote for the infrastructure bill, a much smaller bill. And while it has some good things, Joy, I would just say that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who feel like the pro climate provisions in particular are actually negative, net negative in terms of carbon emissions if you just have that bill. And so what we're trying to do with the reconciliation bill is make sure that's the Build Back Better Act that has all of the rest of it. That's 85% of the president's agenda in the Build Back Better Act. And so we've said we will not vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill until we have a vote in the Senate 
on the reconciliation bill because that is absolutely crucial and we are not going to leave behind women and families who desperately need childcare and paid leave you know people who need uh, community college in order to be able to get those jobs in the infrastructure package we're not going to leave behind climate change and while the infrastructure bill has a little bit of money for water the reality is the vast majority of getting lead out of water you mentioned flint is actually in the build back better So that is why we've been so firm about it. And, um, you know, our, our members have been amazing. Uh, they are not going to leave anybody behind. And we're going to deliver the entirety of President Biden's agenda to his desk. This isn't a liberal wish list of, you know, things that we wish we could have that nobody agrees with us on. 96% of Democrats in the House and the Senate and the President of the United States campaigned on this agenda and now want to deliver it. And, and what's interesting is that Cinema and Manchin initially voted on the framework. They were saying they were for reconciliation. The thing that is confusing about it is it does feel like a bait and switch to those who are looking from the outside looking in. Right. Like they managed to split it so that they could take out everything that, as you said, it's not pro- liberal or progressive. Joe Biden is a moderate. Like Joe Biden is a norm core Democrat, if I've ever seen one. That's why he, Barack Obama picked him. He is not a, he is, is not a sort of classic progressive. He is a moderate. And these are like general democratic things. Let me show you one of the protests that's happening out there. This is USA Today. So there, there are people who are protesting on the Golden Gate Bridge right now because one of the other things that's been thrown over the over the bridge is immigration reform. Like it seems like things that are sort of core to what Democrats have been saying they want to do for a long time are getting thrown under the bus. The White House reportedly is on you guys' side, on the Progressive Caucus's side. Have they signaled to you that they are on your side all the way to the point of if you got to vote against that infrastructure bill, they're good with it? Well, they understand exactly where we are. We have been transparent. I talk to the White House regularly. I talk to them today. I talk to the Speaker regularly. This is the President's agenda, and they know that we are actually the ones who have the President's back. And I know that they have been very complimentary about that, and also about the fact that we're talking about what's in the Build Back Better agenda. I so appreciate that you put up that chart, because while people will remember a road or a bridge, and those are important, Joy. I'm not saying they're not. I need them in my my district. But what people will really remember is when they wake up in the morning and they now can afford childcare. They now have paid family and medical leave. They now can send their kids to community college or trade school. They now have dental vision and hearing for their Medicare benefits. They now have uh, a real chance to tell their kids or their grandkids that the planet is going to be here for them because we're really going to take on climate change. And so I think the White House has been... We've worked very closely with the White House. We've worked very closely with the Speaker. Because, again, this isn't some crazy idea. This is the president's agenda that we insist on delivering for. Let's talk about the the elephants in the room. Uh, And and maybe elephants, because it's weird that they're Democrats here. Let's play um, a conversation that or a confrontation that a Bloomberg reporter had with Joe Manchin yesterday. So the company that Intersystems provides coal to uh, power plants that would be impacted by one of the climate proposals in the, in the plan. How is that not a conflict of interest? What? Your company provides coal. I've been to, in a blind trust for 20 years. I have no idea what they're doing. But you're still doing. getting dividends from it. I mean, it's still... Senator Major, are, are you planning to with the White House? You you have problem? Problem? Do I have a problem? <laughs> your son owns it, right? I mean, is it not a conflict of interest? Very proud of myself. Just good job. 
Senator Okay, that was a little bit uh, hostile. Then you have Senator Cinema, who came out and reiterated her opposition to the $3.5 trillion framework, saying that she's publicly more than two months ago said that um, before Senate passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill, said she would not support a bill costing $3.5 trillion um, and saying we will not negotiate with the press. She won't actually talk with the press. She also, as Lawrence O'Donnell pointed out, won't even talk to her. Doesn't even seem to be showing her constituents very much respect. Is the issue here that the coal interests that the moneyed interests maybe, and I'm not asking you to impugn either of their character, but that the coal interest and moneyed interest maybe even in their own families, in their own circles, big pharma, which we know is related to Joe Manchin, that those interests are coming down so hard on people like Manchin and Cinema that they will never support the $3.5 trillion because really what they've been sent to do is kill, the, kill that bill. Well, I can't speak to those two senators, but what I can tell you is those lobbyists are lined up outside our doors all day long, all week long, all year long. And as we've had more and more people like me and others who don't take corporate PAC contributions, who are insistent that we are here to deliver for the people and to convince people again that government actually works for them and not the special interests, I think what you have seen is more and more reluctance to, you know, pass some of these things that clearly do not make the tax system fair, right? We are insistent that President Biden's agenda, which is to actually make the tax system fair and make the wealthiest pay their fair share and corporations pay their fair share and repeal some of these fossil fuel subsidies and make sure we're taking on drug companies who are making billions, even as people can't afford their life-saving prescriptions. That is President Biden's agenda in the Build Back Better Act. So, I can't say what's driving somebody to be against it, but what I can say is 4%. 4% of all the Democrats in the House and the Senate are blocking the Build Back Better Act from passing. 96% agree with us, the President agrees with us, and the Speaker of the House, the Senate Majority Leader, everybody is with us on this, and yet we're being, you know, we, and, and that's the thing about narrow majorities. And yeah. when people were saying, you know, well, Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, they decide everything. I kept saying to people, everyone, hello, in the House, everyone's Manchin or Cinema. That's we have right. a three-vote majority in the House. And that's why the Progressive Caucus, but also some of our allies, is not a progressives versus moderates fight. That's as right. you point out, it is really a 96% that's of right. Democrats <laughs> against anyone of the 4% who opposes it. So that's and, and why I we've been so strong. I think it's important to, to, re, to, to reiterate that, because I think the way that the media tends to talk about politics is to section it moderates versus progressives, when in this case, that isn't the difference. It's whether you believe in these values that have been Democratic values since FDR or not. Right. And I think right. that it's not a it's not a division. I want to make a quick turn. And by the way, this is an incredible civics exercise to show people how powerful these special interests are and what they're, they're willing to go to the mat to kill off these ideas. They're all over doing ads as well. Let me make a turn because yourself and uh, representatives Cory Bush and Barbara Lee did some incredibly brave testimony that was incredibly personal. We aired some of the interview that you did with Ali Vitale yesterday, but I want to play some of that testimony that you did today. I'm compelled to speak out because of the real risks of the clock being turned back to those days before Roe versus Wade, to the days when I was a teenager and had a back alley abortion in Mexico. 
to all the black women and girls who have had abortions and will have abortions. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We live in a society that has failed to legislate love and justice for us. So we deserve better. We, de we demand better. We are worthy of better. For me, terminating my pregnancy was not an easy choice. The most difficult I've made in my life. But it was my choice. And that is what must be preserved for every pregnant person. I am sure that you are getting a, a overwhelming response to the bravery of you three women. Just give us a little taste of what you've heard back after that amazing testimony. It's been incredible. I mean, the love from across the country, the fact that it was three women of color, members yes. of Congress, testifying, the fact that people feel themselves heard in our stories, the fact that people don't have to tell the story for themselves, but they know it. We should, none of us should have to tell these stories, frankly. They are personal. If we want to, we, then that's great. But there are a lot of people out there who don't want to tell their story, but they want to be heard and they want to be protected and they want to see the diversity of the experiences represented. And I think that's what my incredible colleagues, Representative Lee and, and Representative Bush and I tried to do this morning is portray the intensely personal choices we have to make and the circumstances surrounding those choices. And the fact that, and I said this in my testimony, I will never tell somebody else that they should have abortion because okay. that is their choice. But they don't get to tell me that I shouldn't because at the end of the day, it's my body and I get to control it. I got to tell you, you uh, three and so many of your colleagues are proving that diversity is not a favor to the diverse. It is a gift to this country. It is a gift to America because you all are showing us the meaning of bravery and valor. Thank you so much for doing that and for fighting this fight on behalf of values. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you so you. much, Joy. Thank you, Congresswoman <laughs> Pramila Jayapal. Up next on the readout, Congresswoman Adam, Sch Congressman Adam Schiff joins me on the new subpoenas in the January 6th insurrection and who might be next to receive one. Plus, Christy Nome's long history of using her office to help her family members get jobs. She's been caught yet again at the critical Virginia governor's race between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Glenda Youngkin, who really wants people to believe he's a moderate and not the Trumper he truly is. And tonight's absolute worst, gaming the system to their advantage while simultaneously sabotaging the Biden economic agenda. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
The Select Committee on January 6th is moving forward in high gear, issuing 11 new subpoenas just last night to those involved in planning, promoting and financing the rallies that precipitated the siege on the Capitol, including the so-called Stop the Steal rally at the Ellipse. Now, you may not have heard of these people, but their depositions are a crucial step toward untangling the web of connections and communications that set the stage for the insurrection. Among them is Cindy Shafian, who submitted the original permit application for the rally. She's closely allied with extremist radio host Alex Jones, and she openly praised the right-wing militias that would later lead the attack on the Capitol. Then there's Maggie Mulvaney, a niece of Trump's former chief of staff, who served as the VIP lead of the rally. Mulvaney is also a current House staffer, according to Politico, which notes that The House has rarely turned its subpoena power on its own. Then there's Katrina Pearson, who reportedly had an in-person meeting with Donald Trump two days before the insurrection. In fact, she was reportedly assigned to the White House to, quote, take charge of the rally planning. That's according to ProPublica, which reported in June that Pearson helped arrange a deal where those organizers deemed too extreme to speak at the Ellipse could do so on the day before, on January 5th. In other words, the White House knew extremists would be descending on Washington. They knew it was a powder keg just waiting to explode. And Donald Trump still lit the fuse. According to among the extremists who spoke on January 5th was a member of the paramilitary group, the three percenters, as well as far right wing activist Ali Alexander, who later implicated three Republican lawmakers in the events of the next day. This comes amid new signs that the select committee means business. They've already previewed the possibility of holding resistant witnesses in contempt, noting that the Biden Justice Department is not likely to stand in the way. And Congressman Adam Schiff signaled this morning that there may be more subpoenas to come, indicating that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy would also be a pertinent witness. And Congressman Adam Schiff of California joins me now. Congressman, let's go right to that, because the idea that you have a current uh, Republican House staffer that is on the list already That feels like the door is now open. Should we be expecting to see names on that list that are more recognizable and that are members of Congress up to and potentially including the speak uh, the uh, House Minority Leader? We haven't made any decisions uh, yet on particular members of Congress. But one thing we have been very clear about it, and that is no one is off limits. Uh, We want to get to the bottom of all the facts, what led up to that insurrection, what planning went into it, uh, who was organizing the rally, what expectation they had about potential violence uh, or planned violence that day. Uh, and if they're members of Congress, and I think there are, that have relevant information about the planning of that day, that were on the phone with the president during that day, uh, that can shed light on what the president knew, when he knew it, what others uh, in the White House uh, were doing, uh, why the, the military response was so slow in coming. Uh, We want answers to all those questions. So um, people ought to understand whether they're in Congress or out of Congress. If they have relevant information, we're going to want it. What's frightening here is how the connections between some of these extremist groups and the White House appear to be playing out just in the order of the subpoenas that are coming out. This is this woman, Cindy Shafian. She openly praised these militias, uh, some of whom later were involved in the insurrection. She she stood on January 5th at this pre-rally that was where the extremists were. Thank you, Proud Boys, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, all of those guys. 
keep you safe. There's also ProPublica reporting that one of the organizers of the rallies told ProPublica and his, that his group felt the need to urgently warn the White House of possible danger. It remains unclear precisely what the White House officials learned about safety concerns about the march and whether they took those reports seriously. The indication here that at least some people who were planning these uh, rallies leading up to January 6th understood that there were going to be violent people around. And they seem to have done nothing if not encouraging those people to still show up. Is that the sense that you have? Well, this is exactly what we need to flesh out. And, you know, for those who say, don't we know what happened on January 6th? There are so many unanswered questions. Uh, what did we know? What did the planners know? What did the president know about who was showing up? Uh, and was it part of the plan that if they couldn't get the vice president to violate the Constitution and decertify the results from this state or that, that they were prepared to use violence. Was that part of the plan? Uh, what was the president's thinking? What was the president advised about who was showing up? Uh, and so these are among the most central questions to this inquiry. Uh, and these folks that were involved in the planning of the, the rally, um, they have pertinent information to share, uh, and we are gonna expect their cooperation, and we're gonna insist on their testimony one way or another. And you mentioned uh, the former president. I mean, this is somebody who said, we're going to go down. I'll walk with you. And we're hopefully going to see the vice president, Mike Pence, be brave. We hope he will be. We hope these Congress people will be. In, in retrospect, that all sounds very threatening. He seems to be an obvious person that the commission uh, might want to hear from. Is that in the plans? Well, I don't want to get ahead of where our committee or our chairman are, uh, but you, you raise a, a very important point, which is the president, of course, said that he was going to go with these uh, marchers descending on the Capitol and didn't. Um, so why did he tell the crowd he was and why did he decide not to? Was the president aware of what was going to happen when they got to the Capitol? Um, these are really uh, pivotal questions at the heart of all of this. Uh, and and uh, we're going to be calling in anyone who has relevant information. Uh, and uh, and look, we expect to get a fight uh, on some of this. The president is already gearing up for a fight. But the fact that we're going straight to subpoenas with some of these witnesses uh, show you that we're not messing around here. Uh, we're not going to allow ourselves to be endlessly played rope a dope with in the court. Uh, we need to get answers and we need to get them fast. And it, how uh, hard are you guys willing to go in terms of enforcing these subpoenas? We know that the Trump administration's officials routinely batted away subpoenas and pretended that they didn't have to comply with them. Now that they are no longer in charge of the Justice Department, do you expect these subpoenas to be enforced by the DOJ? And if so, how? Uh, that is certainly my expectation. Um, and I hope I will not be disappointed in that expectation. Uh, the, the mechanism is... If we subpoena people and they don't show up or they refuse to cooperate, we can hold them in contempt and we can make a referral uh, for a criminal contempt uh, charge against those who are flouting the law. Uh, and then it will be up to the attorney general. Uh, now, we didn't have that uh, option during the last four years when we had people like Bill Barr, uh, right. who essentially would do anything the former president wanted, no matter uh, how corrupt uh, up until the very end, apparently. Uh, yeah. So uh, given that he was one of the people in contempt of Congress, uh, it wasn't viable uh, to go to him to enforce a subpoena. It's obviously a very different situation now. Uh, and we will uh, hope and count on the uh, Biden Justice Department uh, and the new attorney general 
uh, to enforce the rule of law. Uh, as somebody who does not feel that I know very much about what happened on January 6th, I feel there is so, so much more to learn. Uh, I thank you all for uh, this inquiry. Uh, we will be watching and paying very close attention. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate you being thank here. Thank you. All right. And up next on the readout, the roaming gnome has freely attacked President Biden's son. But new accusations about gnome's own nepotism are so egregious. Her state's disgraced attorney general is looking into it. More ahead on the readout. Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis Live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery mobile game that puts your detective skills to the test. Embark on a journey into a gripping narrative where intrigue, secrets, and unexpected twists await at every turn. Play as June Parker and investigate beautifully detailed scenes of the 1920s whilst uncovering the mystery of her sister's murder. Rediscover the magic of June's childhood as you roam the vast estate filled with secrets and memories waiting to be uncovered. Gather compelling evidence and decipher clues, immersing yourself in a captivating world of discovery that will keep you hooked until the very end. Compete with friends and other players to see who can solve cases the fastest or achieve the highest scores. Are you ready to jump back in time, detectives? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Discover the secrets of the past. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem is under the scrutiny of her state's attorney general after accusations that she abused her power and engaged in nepotism. Earlier this week, the Associated Press reported that last summer, after Nome's adult daughter was denied a real estate appraiser certification, Nome summoned to her office the state employee who ran the agency, the woman's direct supervisor, and the state labor secretary, all for a little chat. Nome's daughter was there, too. And soon after that meeting, her daughter's certification was magically approved. But that's not all. Just after Nome's daughter had her certification in hand, the labor secretary called that very agency head to demand her resignation. The governor denies that she asked for any special treatment for her daughter. South Dakota Attorney General Jason Ravensburg, a fellow Republican, says he is actively reviewing the situation. And joining me now is Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large for The Bulwark and an MSNBC columnist. Let's talk about this because um, it, it's a very complicated situation where even— the guy investigating her, Jason Robinsborg, is also problematic. He faced misdemeanor charges for striking and killing a man with his car last summer, claiming he didn't see the man before, during or after the accident, even though the man's glasses were found in his car. So it's kind of like, is there anybody that isn't corrupt in South Dakota? 
No, there's something rotten in South Dakota, and Christy Nome is having a pretty bad day. She's having actually having a bad week. And so let's put this in context. You know, she's been um, on this short list possibly for. 2024. And the assumption in MAGA world, of course, is that Donald Trump would be the nominee. And so the question is, who will be the, the, the vice presidential candidate? And there's a lot of speculation that Trump might name a woman or a member of a minority group, so a person of color. So that pushes Christy Nome and people like Tim Scott to the top of the list, which means that every one of these stories is sort of a test. Is she ready for prime time? Because you know what? She's not going to have the same kind of media cover as I think you called him the mango Mussolini. And uh, it's, it's a test of, of, of her ethics, but it's also a test about her ability to handle these stories. And that's not going well. Well, I mean, look, let's just go through some of her nepotism scandals. One of her college-age yeah. daughters was one of the first four employees hired for her transition team back in 2018. Over the course of two years, she worked for her mom, this young woman is Kennedy. Her last name is Kennedy. Enjoyed more than $17,000 in raises at the taxpayer expense, including a 12% wage boost in the midst of a wage freeze that no had imposed on all other employees. Uh, Kyle Peters, the husband of Nome's older daughter, took a $60,000 salary in the governor's office of economic development. It prompted one Republican state senator to introduce an anti-nepotism bill um, because of her. So she has a history of this. But my question is, in the party of Trump, does that even matter? Doesn't that actually make her more qualified to be his VP? Like, if she's cor that corrupt, like, isn't she just what he wants? Well, see, this is what is interesting. And I'm, we've talked about this before, how, how Trump world seems to attract all of these, uh, these these characters who are, you know, ethically questionable because they know that there's no, no apologies, right? There are really no standards. You can just push back, um, uh, you know, against the fake news. The problem here, though, and this is where I think she's got some problems, is there are going to be knives out throughout MAGA, the, the MAGA world, and she doesn't have the kind of unique position that Donald Trump has. Now, look, she's done everything possible to be as deplorable as possible, you know, uh, sending, uh, you know, paying to send the National Guardsmen down to the, the border and, and, you know, and, and the various other things. But in this world, there are so many litmus tests. So, again, she's going to be facing these darts from within the tent. And I, I, I think she may be thinking, hey, I'm running the governorship like a family business. Isn't that what the <laughs> Trump White House was? I mean, I'm not treating my kids any different than Donald Trump was treating right. his kids. But you know what? We often find out that the rules don't apply the That's same right. way to Trump is as they do to the guy at the top. Correct. And there's also the woman factor, too. I mean, I remember Nikki Haley facing similar friendly fire in South right. Carolina when Republicans tried to accuse her of sort of, you know, infidelity stuff. And there's sort of weird stuff yeah. floating around in Christy Noem as well. And it does feel like it's coming from inside the tent. Trump doesn't yes. respect women. So aren't these yeah. women like Nikki Haley, who's now trying to kiss up to Trump and people like Christy right. Noem, she can say that she wants to put him on Mount Rushmore every day of the week. He'll take it, right. bank it and still pick DeSantis. Well, the, the thing is that he's going to want to see whether they're tough, they're strong, they will fight. Um, and, and, and you're making kind of a reference to a, a garbage attack from a garbage publication. But I think it's totally. an indication of, of the kind of sleaze that you're going to get out there. And you know that that in this world, I mean, see, this is, again, the problem of, of the megaverse is that truth is not necessarily a predicate for spreading stories about people. And so you do get that about Nikki Haley. You do get that about Christy Noem. So it, it is going to be ugly. 
Um, And it's going to be, I mean, and it's going to accelerate. The fact that you're having this kind of thing happening now this early is an indication of the toxic environment. But what a surprise, you know, that uh, that the Trump world is this sort of uh, toxic sludge dump. But these stories about the nepotism uh, run deep. Um, I I think it shows a a callousness and and an incaution, a sloppiness, a, a contempt for ethics. And she just seems to be stumbling in trying to explain it. Yeah, indeed. To quote uh, Rickles and everything, Trump touches dies. Everyone trying to suck up to him. You're going to find out real quick. All those rules only apply to him. Charlie Sykes are great. Thank you very yes. much. Have a wonderful Thank evening. You. OK, does the name Glenn Youngkin ring a bell? He's Virginia's Republican gubernatorial nominee, and he wants you to believe he's a moderate. But he's really a Trump in sheep's clothing. We'll explain after this. There is a new big name Republican in town, not quite a household name yet, but you are about to hear a lot more about Glenn Youngkin in the coming weeks. He's the Republican running for governor of Virginia against Democratic former Governor Terry McAuliffe. Now, in many ways, Youngkin embodies what it means to be a norm core conservative slash maybe moderate Republican these days, trying to appease both the forever Trumpers and independent voters. His success or failure could solidify the GOP playbook leading up to the midterms next year. And it could have huge implications for the health of Virginians. Similar to the recall election in California, where Gavin Newsom defeated the COVID candidate, Larry Elder, elections these days all seem to boil down to three things. The big lie, what elected officials will do about the big lie in future elections, COVID mandates. Here's where Youngkin stands on the ladder. The one thing I can do is I can remove the mandates from the state employees. That's the one thing legally I can do on the state law. State employees are no longer mandated to get the vaccine. Joining me now is Democratic strategist Juanita Tolliver and Democratic pollster and strategist Cornell Belcher. Juanita, I'm going to start with you because the other issue now that Texas has brought to the fore is abortion. And Youngkin tries to sound sort of Norm Corey moderate-ish, but here he is um, talking about abortion when he thinks that he's not being heard by the general public. Yeah, I'm going to be really honest with you. The short answer is, in this campaign, I can. When I'm governor and I have a majority in the House, we can start going on offense. But as a campaign topic, sadly, that in fact won't win my independent votes that I have to get. Juanita, that's the quiet part. Oopsie out loud. So is the risk here that people think this guy's moderate, but then he's like, poof, I want to do a Texas on abortion. That's exactly right, Joy. And I think in the primary, people got a taste of that if if they were paying attention to what he was saying there, because he did not mince words in the primary on abortion. He didn't mince words on the 2020 election results in the in the primary amongst GOP candidates because he knew he had to appeal to the GOP base who are primary voters. But like he said, it's going to be a bait and switch. As soon as he gets those independent votes, which polling shows are skewing more Republican in this election cycle, then he's going to flip the script. And he's going to come after not only women's rights, but he's also going to make sure that any lies that Trump says are going to be amplified. He's going to come after anything else in terms of old Republican goodies like tax cuts um, and really lifting up on any type of crime language. And so expect a bait and switch from him full speed, because what he's doing right now, I think Republicans are picking up on it and celebrating it because they're like, oh, he's expanding our tent. He's expanding Mm. voters that we can appeal to after doing what he needed to do to win the GOP primary. He flipped and he'll flip again if he wins the governorship. 
I, I think that is sort of the, the risk, Cornell, is that he comes across sort of like the Maryland governor. You're like, oh, he doesn't seem so or whatever. Or like people used to say about the uh, Kasich in Ohio. Kasich in Ohio was an extreme anti-abortion candidate. But to the media, he's like, oh, he seems moderate. But once one of these guys gets in, this is what Youngkin said about whether or not he would certify the election. Youngkin believes Biden beat Trump in the 2020 election legitimately, but while speaking with Axios, he wouldn't say whether he would have voted to certify the election if he was a member of Congress. So the bottom line is, if he's in there in a state like Virginia that presumably goes blue for Biden, but then he's like, nah, he's certifying that. Bait, switch. Well, this is the problem, but this is why we also have campaigns. Uh, and why campaigns matter. And, you know, you referenced the California uh, example earlier. And, and let's understand, polls in California were, you know, a month or a month and a half out from the election, too, you know, were 50-50 proposition uh, until slowly the Democrats began to sort of turn their fire and define uh, the crazy Republicans in the race. And I think fairly soon you're going to have to you're going to see uh, Democrats begin to find him as not a moderate, but quite frankly, a, a Trumper. But let's also understand that this is Virginia and I'm a Virginian. And I remember it wasn't that long ago that Virginia was a toss up state. And you'll remember, Joy, that that quite frankly, Obama in 2012, you know, didn't blow the doors out in Virginia either. I mean, we got 50, 50.8, I think, percent yeah. of, of the vote there. But it's been trending blue. And quite frankly, the Trumpism has been helping it trend blue. Like I'm a big Look, I think Northam's been a great governor, but Northam at the time got more votes for governor than anyone that has ever run for governor. I don't think that was just about Northam, right? I think that was also about the, the sense of Trumpism and voters rejecting the Trumpism. So I think through a campaign process, I looked to, to see the Democrats turn this uh, into a referendum about sort of him and, and defining him as a Trumper. Well, let's give, let you both give uh, Terry McAuliffe's campaign a grade on that one. It is he, is he effectively doing that? I think McCall's trying his best, right? And what he is getting hit with, as we saw in the debate stage earlier this week, that is Youngkin is further and further trying to distance himself from Trump. But with the clip that you just showed, Joy, and with Youngkin on stage saying if Trump runs in 2024, he'll support him, expect to see those ads dropping. Just like Cornell said, that's what you'll see in the week of the election, because that's when we know Democrats in Virginia are tried and true as far as GOTV turnout. And so that is the message that they're going to be hitting the doors with. That's what you're going to see on airwaves and on here, here on the radio. And, you know, Cornell, I think the big worry is that because he doesn't come across as loopy and overly Trump, overtly Trumpy, Democrats might not have the same level of enthusiasm, while Trump people are going to be super enthusiastic to steal a blue state. Is that a worry of yours? I think it's an absolute worry. It's not only a worry for me about Virginia, but it's also a worry for me going into the going into the midterms, and particularly with what's going on uh, right here in Washington today, mm. where we're not talking about justice and policing, we're not talking about voting rights, right? And those were the two key issues for for African American and base Democrats going into going into the last election, where where Democrats said, you know what, put us in power, and we're going to handle this. We're going to give you justice and policing, and we're going to give you voting rights, and they've not done either one of those two things, and and so I think it is. I am worried about us energizing our, our, our base, given sort of the back and forth that we see going on in Washington and it leaking down to other parts of the country. And do you have the same worry, Juanita, that because it does feel like, an, you know, you hear it anecdotally that the base is annoyed and fed up. Is that going to be a problem? Look, while nationally, yes, that's the vibe. But I do have to recognize that in the Commonwealth, Democrats in the House of Delegates and in the Senate have been doing a lot to achieve a Democratic agenda. And while folks in the Beltway and Northern Virginia might be disincentivized by what they're seeing on Capitol Hill, 
be, let's be real that the rest of the Commonwealth knows what Democrats are delivering for them. They have a strong platform and that's absolutely going to help them in this election. Note that I did not note the polls because I feel like sometimes the polls make people too comfortable. Um, so we're just going to leave that out, even though, Cornell, we love you and you're a pollster, but I'm not going to mention the polls. No, no, no. It's, it's a jinx. Uh, Juanita Tolliver and Cornell Belcher, thank you both very much. Up next, there is a very obvious reason that Biden's agenda is stalled. And it is not, not, not because the American people do not support it. The absolute worst is next. If there is one little thing we know about the extremely rich, it is that many of them do everything they can do to avoid paying taxes so that they can have as much money as humanly possible. In a new piece this week, ProPublica reports that IRS records show that more than half of America's 100 richest people are using special trusts to dodge the estate tax. A list of the usual suspects includes Michael Bloomberg, Charles Koch and his late brother, David, and Eric Prince. They point out that there's no way to know how much this has cost the United States government. But in 2013, a lawyer estimated it had been more than $100 billion, with a B, since the year 2000. This comes as Congress is debating a way to use increased taxes on the wealthy and corporations to pay for Biden's Build Back Better plan, something we keep hearing that America just can't afford. The White House released a report last week showing that the country's 400 wealthiest families have been able to slash their income tax bills to an average rate of 8.2 percent due to loopholes in the tax code. That rate is 5 percent below what the average American, meaning y'all, pay. But we're not just talking about personal income taxes here. Corporations are also a big problem. This year alone, 55 corporations paid zip zero in federal income tax, including FedEx, Nike, and American Electric Power. While Amazon wasn't on this year's list, it still avoided $2.3 billion in federal income taxes last year, according to the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. These people have enough cash to literally launch themselves into space for a quick vacay. But nope, America cannot afford to do any spending on its regular ordinary people. Nope. That disparity is what made this moment at the ultra-rich confab in Davos go viral in 2019. I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid (laughs) philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more. But come on, it's we got to be talking about taxes. That's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in my opinion. That aversion to paying taxes, taxes, taxes is exactly what's holding up Biden's plan, which would raise the corporate tax rate as well as taxes for the top 1%. The Chamber of Commerce and other trade groups have spent millions of dollars fighting that corporate tax increase. And guess who they've spent a lot of that money on? Kirsten Sinema, who shockingly has come out against raising corporate and income tax rates. Ta-da! Even though, as Ken Clipperstein pointed out on Twitter today, she once tweeted in 2011 that asking big corporations and the rich to pay their fair share is common sense, not class warfare, among other tweets on raising taxes and closing loopholes. I sure wonder what happened to that reasonable progressive politician. Okay, here's the thing. Biden's plan is popular, and so is taxing the super wealthy. A new poll shows that 66% of Americans favor raising taxes on large businesses and corporations. 
with 37 percent saying that taxes should be raised a lot. 61 percent say taxes should be raised on income that is over four hundred thousand dollars. But because our democracy apparently runs on lobbying, there is no agreement on Biden's plan and it may never come to fruition. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown made that exact point on the Senate floor today. Hear these reports about billionaires not paying taxes. You hear these reports about record profits on Wall Street. You see the influence. Just, you know, check down the hall, Madam President. Look, look, look down the hall. You can see the influence in the majority, in the minority leader's office, Senator McConnell, of lobbyists going in and out, always getting their way. It's always about helping those in charge get wealthier. So for their absolute greed, the rich and the mega corporations do everything they can to avoid taxes and their lobbyists, they are tonight's absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. Check out the readout blog, please. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.